Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How goes it, everyone? It is 2.10, about roughly 2.10 on Friday, August 14th, 2020. And that means it's time for this week's trip down the homeward path. My name is Adam, and I'm a husband, father of three, just finished a 45-hour work week yesterday. I actually didn't have to work today. I requested it off, and then the reason I requested it off fell through, so there you go. 45 hours, four days, I'm beat. But I do this show for one reason. Magic is hard, and so is improving. And it's all harder when things are more important than magic that we gotta worry about. But if we focus on our three Bs, budgeting, brewing, breaking bad habits, we can overcome. If that sounds like you, well then I hope you kept a really good hand because I just seized your thoughts and I would hate for things to fall apart. Okay, I know that joke was bad. It cost me two life. Anyway, let's move on to our first segment. Let's move on to reminding you who brings this show to you. We are sponsored by PureMTGO.com. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest collections of quality magic content on the web. And you should check it out. Uh, While you're poking around on the internet, you need to check out our parent network at ConstructedCriticism.com. I mean... You probably already do, but I have to do the spiel. Check out the amazing content on the network. Mason and Allie are a, a, a force to be reckoned with on constructed criticism. Uh, I still have not really gotten to know the, guy, the, the new host of Common Knowledge. The show's still good. I just haven't really kind of... I haven't gotten into the, to the rhythm of listening consistently again yet. Once I start playing more popper, I probably will. Uh, and of course, we're still here. Spencer still does content for Wednesday Night Warrior, and occasionally we'll do Dak Tacks and stuff for the Heasy Game Media YouTube channel. Check it out. Do yourself that favor. It is worth the time. And while you're checking stuff out, if you want to become a if you want to support this show directly, patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. This show's always going to be free. But if you want to support what I'm doing, you like what I'm doing enough to help me keep doing it, head over there, become a patron. Take advantage of the rewards that are available. I cannot English today. So let's move into our first segment, which is while we were away. We had two... Well, we had one big announcement from Wizards, one big happenstance this week in the world of Magic. Amonkhet Remastered released on Arena yesterday. And I'm excited. To channel my inner abridged series. I'm so excited. And I just can't hide it. Amonkhet uh, was one of my favorite blocks I've ever played. And I know that sounds, you know, like heresy. But it actively has. I actively loved playing Amonkhet. It was one of the best limited formats I played. I played Draft Weekend. And it was the first time I ever felt like I drafted a good deck. Part of it was everybody else at the table letting me get all the removal spells. I ended up with 10. And the other part of it was I, I like, the the themes made sense. They were easy to break down in my head. Uh, the Embalm and Eternalize mechanics were very effective. Mana sinks is something to do to prevent mana flood. Cycling is a good mechanic to help prevent mana flood. And... You know, Exert is a cool mechanic that has a lot of decisions to it. Just all the way around fantastic. By contrast, it also had a rich constructed pedigree. I know it doesn't sound like it because, you know, we had Aetherworks Marvel and the energy cards and more energy cards and then the Ixalan cards came out and then Dominaria came out and Nobody cared anymore because now we had Teferi Hero of Dominaria 
and Wizards Lightning and all this other cool stuff, but some of the most powerful cards of standard for the run that Amonkhet had were in Amonkhet. Hazard the Fervent was one of the best top-end threats red decks have ever had access to. It was one of the few times you could justify playing more lands in your mono-red aggro deck because you actively didn't mind curving all the way up to five. You were fine with it. Scarab God is... I, I'm sorry, Mason. I, I misspoke. The Scarab God. You have to use our Dark Lord and Savior's full name. The Scarab God. Magic Hall of Famer, The Scarab God. Is one of the most powerful threats I have ever used, ever, full stop. That includes playing during the Bitter Blossom era, that includes playing during the Stoneforge Mystic era in Standard. Scarab God's one of the most powerful things I've ever used. Because I have never felt like I was in such a dominant position as I have when I untapped with the Scarab God. In addition... I mean, there's there's cards sprinkled all over. There's build-around cards like uh, Gate to the Afterlife and God Pharaoh's Gift, uh, the cycling cards, you know, Abandoned Sarcophagus that allows you to play the... Treat your cycling cards like split cards that draw cards early and then cast out of the graveyard late. There's cards like uh, Temet, Vizier of Noctamoon, Vizier of the Anointed, ways to load embalm and eternalize cards into the graveyard and with access to divine visitation potentially makes things very interesting to do so anointed procession is a build around if there ever was a build around like eternalizing sun scourge champion with double anointed procession in play is a real good way to make your mono red opponent scoop their cards up because you eternalize your Sun Scourge champion, and instead of making one token, you make four. And each one of those tokens gains four life, so you gain 16 life, put 16 power on the board, and Mono Red's not doing a whole lot more. They might be in trouble now. Because now you've got time, now you've got ways to trade on the board, now you're, now things are interesting. Oh, but wait, Mono Red gets Earthshaker Kenra, Ramen Up Ruins, Hazaret, Glorybringer, Bringing the glory is, I'd argue, one of Magic's favorite pastimes. Just ask Wyatt Darby how powerful it is to bring the glory at the right time. And on top of all of that, we also have new, I use new in air quotes, new cards that were added to the remastered set to add some wrinkles to Historic and help lay the foundation for Pioneer on Arena in Thoughtseize, Collected Company and Wrath of God being the primary big three. There, I'm sure there are some others, but those are the three I care about right now. Wrath of God replacing Shatter the Sky and basically every deck that wanted to play Shatter the Sky because now you never give your opponent a card off of your board sweeper. Collected Company is an archetype unto itself even if the cards never have any synergy just because plop Looping creatures into play off the top of your library is really powerful, and uh, that's all there is to say about that. It's a really fine line between Collected Company being a very good card and Collected Company being a very broken card, but it's not a very it it it's never going to be Collected Company as like a fine card. Not for nothing, it also makes me very happy that Standard and Historic and Pioneer now have access to Containment Priest and Graft Digger's Cage. <laughs> and that brings me, you know, moving away from Amonkhet and potential implications for Historic and Pioneer for a moment, we're going to talk about what I've been playing on the ladder this week because I have been having an absolute blast with Sultai Adventures. Ooh, we're going on one. We're going on an adventure right now. Because I know when I said the word Sultai, the first thing that came to your mind was Ramp, Casualties of War, Nyssa, Hydrocrisis, Eliminates, Cultivates, Ugins, all that good stuff. No, it's not what I'm here for. It's not what I'm here to do. Extinction Event's a good magic card. 
I didn't want to play it this week. The reason I chose Sultai Adventures, I like the green-black clover deck, but I didn't like its end game. It didn't feel flexible. Like your end game with green black clover is I don't know, like get a bunch of creatures on the table and clover a smitten swordmaster and hope it's enough. Cast a smitten swordmaster to power up a second one. It's a lot of moving pieces that have to come together in the right order. And I'm just I'm not comfortable with that. So what I did is I took the best parts of Green Black Clover, i.e. Lucky Clover, Murderous Rider, Foulmire Knight, Order of Midnight, Edgewall Innkeeper, Lovestruck Beast. Just the good cards. And I do, I'm, I'm kind of in the minority here, but I do play Flaxen Intruder in my adventure decks. For two reasons. One... It's good in the mirror because if you play that on turn one, your opponent is forced to use a stomp on it. You know, if you're in the, the Sultai versus Teamer adventure matchup, if you play Flaxen Intruder on turn one, your opponent is forced, whether on the if they're on the draw, to use a stomp on it. Because there's no benefit to them jamming Lucky Clover onto the table if you're just going to swing in, make them take one, and get rid of it. Full stop. It just gets rid of Clovers in the mirror early in the game. It forces the opponent to act, and the more they act on your payoff cards, the less they have for your engine cards, which allows you to win the who gets to keep their innkeeper or Clover sub game that goes on the other reason I chose Sultai specifically well specific, let's let's go a little bit more in detail as to like what the deck is uh, basically I took the green black clover deck I kept the good cards cut the the weird kind of mopey cut down on some of the mopier cards like Falmire Knight I think is a two of I might bump that number up because it's been better than I thought it would. Um, Order of Midnight's a two of. Murderous Rider is a full four of. Lovestruck Beast is a full four of. And then I said, well, why should Teamer be the only deck that gets to play with uh, Fey of Wishes? Brazen Borrower is really good at catching you up against other uh, mid-range and aggro decks. It's really, really, really good magic card. Fay of Wishes unlocks features that decks like this should not have access to. The ability to access sideboard cards in game one is backbreaking. And what I decided is I liked the options that Sultai had access to better than I did the ones for Teamer. Now don't get me, don't get it twisted. I also have a fairly stock Teamer adventure list built on Arena that I play fairly regularly. But of the two, I actually like the Sultai deck a little bit more. Maybe it's because of my never-ending quest to be a successful brewer. But it's also because I feel like it matches up against a little bit more of the metagame in a more meaningful way in exchange for being, like, maybe a, a hair worse against decks like Mono Black and Mono Red. So, what I decided to do with the wishboard is there are some absolute haymakers when you play black. Unmoored Ego can completely shut opposing decks that are single-minded in their approach out of the game. Unmoored Ego was a card I sing that single-handedly single won me a game against uh, Mono Black Devotion. Because it turns out when you take away Grey Merchant of Asphodel, that deck's not scary at all. Suddenly they don't have a billion damage out of nowhere because they play Gary, sacrifice Gary to Ayara in with a Nightmare Shepherd on the board and make another one. So having access to Unmoored Ego to take that away from them is very appealing. 
It's kind of the thing they do. That's what their deck is built around. Casualties of War is a card the ramp decks are bending over backwards to play, but it is really awkward when you draw a bunch of them early. So we're just going to play one in the wishboard. Thought Distortion. That thing can bend a dedicated Ugin ramp deck over its knee. Exile all of your ramp spells and all of your big dumb planeswalkers. That sounds really good, doesn't it? And it gets the one out of your graveyards, and it doesn't make you discard, so Tamiyo doesn't work. Planeswalkers of our own. We still, because we're still playing green for Lovestruck and Edgewall and uh, Flaxen Intruder, we still get to play Nissa. We're playing, I think, two in the main and one in the wishboard. That card is really, really powerful when you want to be cycling through a whole bunch of different spells in a turn. Liliana Dreadhorde General. Really, really, really good magic card. For a while, I was playing Ashiok uh, Dream Render as a way to hard counter the ramp decks. Ultimately, it turns out that turns up uh, way too late in the game for, to, for it to matter. So it became... If I'm not mistaken, it became one. I think it became Guru Cursed Hunter. Cursed Huntsman, sorry. So why Saltai Overteamer? Black Adventure creatures sit lower on the mana curve. Foulmire Knight, um, Foulmire Knight, Order of Midnight, they all sit, they, they cost one and two mana. Murderous Rider has the same converted mana cost as Bonecrusher Giant. But it allows us to better leverage both of our value cards. In particular, we better leverage Edgewall Innkeeper than the Teamer deck does because we have so many one and two mana cards that allow us to draw with an active Innkeeper. So that we can apply pressure to the board without sacrificing hand economy. Secondly, Order of Midnight can rebuild your engine is a flying creature and can reuse your most powerful adventure cards that have been taken out of your hand by cards like Thought Erasure. Order of Midnight being able to, with a Lucky Clover on the battlefield, snag back Edgewall Innkeeper, Lovestruck Beast, and Foulmire Knight. That is such incredible value. Incredible value. I'd be dumb not to use that. We play the Miser's Demonic Embrace in the sideboard as our kind of go over the top of everyone. In this case, literally go over the top of everyone play. Because Demonic Embrace in the board means occasional flying Lovestruck Beasts or Beanstalk Giants. <laughs> flying Beanstalk Giant, that's, that's three words that should strike fear into the heart of anyone that cannot block flying. Because that thing's going to be big. It's kind of the nature of the beast, I guess. Well, the love struck beast. Anyway, Liliana Dreadhorde General is also a clean wishboard out to cards that Teamer cannot beat reliably. You can try to outmuscle them, you can try to outpower them, but in a straight up fight, if the opponent has played the game well, Teamer, Teamer Adventure cannot reliably beat a Dream Trawler. You can hold it at bay, but you're sacrificing cards to do it. You know, you can play Petty Theft on it, even with Clovers in play. They just pitch a card, it gets tapped. Well, now they don't get to draw another card when it attacks. Sure, it doesn't get bigger. Sure, it doesn't hit you. But now you've lost the, the Brazen Borrower half and the card you would have drawn off the Innkeeper. So it's like they've, they've still two-for-one'd you. You know, Liliana Dreadhorde General being able to just come down and kill a Dream Trawler. Come down and edict away a, a green-white Aura's board. It's really powerful. Really effective. It's exactly what the, the Dak Doctor ordered, if you will. And then perhaps most importantly, 
with with all the excitement surrounding all these like weird Simic and Sultai Ugin ramp decks that are dedicated to jamming Nissas and Ugins down your throat. Having access to Swift End, Assassin's Trophy, and Casualties of War cleanly answers those cards at minimum on a one-for-one -one basis. You can't do that in Teamer easily. Like, Fae of Wishes does not go get a card on its own that just kills an Ugin no matter what. And especially with a negligible drawback like Assassin's Trophies. Oh no, they they get their ninth land. What will I do with myself? You know, Swift End is great because with uh, with a Lucky Clover on the battlefield, they go Nissa, animate a land. You go Response, Swift End, kill Nissa and the land. <laughs> yeah, I take four, but get out of here. Casualties of War, sniping down this, sniping down Anissa, the land it animated another land, and potentially an enchantment or artifact on the battlefield. That's really good. Mass Manipulation is also a card that is still somehow standard legal, and I think a lot of us forgot about that. Uh, I, I have one of the most satisfying games of Magic I've ever played, wherein we... You know, I found out I was against Simic Ramp on turn three when they cast Cultivate. So I said, I'm not playing into this Ugin. I'm not going to get blown out by it. I'm going to leverage the Clover. I'm going to use the Clover. So we drew some cards with Filemire Knight. We wished for some cards early. The idea being to try to cut them off, and then they ended up playing... I was expecting eight-drop Ugin two turns from then and they dropped six drop Ugin immediately <laughs> so we wished again I said I said I, I looked at the board I looked at everything going on I said okay I really really need to draw Fae of Wishes right now drew Fae of Wishes cast Fae of Wishes and I grabbed Mass Manipulation, Once in Future, and Another Land. Played the land for turn, passed. For the record, the land in my wish board currently is uh, Castle Lockpoint. But we grab Mass Manipulation, Once in Future, and a land to help me cast it. And I looked at everything, I was like, oh no. I really need to draw my fourth blue source right now. Because they went uh, end race forerunners, attack you for 11. <laughs> After having cast Big Ugin in the in the in-between turns. You know, I made the wish plan. I said, okay, what are you gonna do? They cast the big Ugin. Or that they had cast the big Ugin the first time, cast the N-Race Forerunners the, the next turn, attacked me for 11. I'm dead on board. I said, I really need to draw the fourth blue source, peeled the island, played the island, mass manipulation, take both Ugins, minus Ugin the Ineffable to destroy N-Race Forerunners, plus Ugin the Spirit Dragon to kill one of the Tutus. We're okay. <laughs> <laughs> and said opponent scooped it up right then and there. So the power of mass manipulation cannot be understated because it is as powerful as everything your opponent is playing, and you don't even have to play it in your main deck because of Fae of Wishes. Even if you're playing Teamer, you should play mass manipulation. It's really good. Like, really, really, really good. But that brings me away from what we've been talking about to what I wanted to talk about as our main topic this week, which is fighting fair in Magic the Gathering. Because at their core, basically every deck in the history of Magic can be boiled down to the way they intend to play the game. They're either fair or unfair. And we've done a segment about, we've done an episode about unfair decks before.
But what does it mean to be a fair duck? What is it? What is your game plan? What is your approach? What is your your mental place? Like, where are you mentally that you want to play a fair duck? Well, it starts with wanting to seek a game with a small number of actions per turn. I'm not saying the decks are, are autopilot by any stretch of the imagination. The de- less decisions, infinite, uh, less decisions means more of them matter. So getting them right becomes more important than making a lot of them. You know, it's really easy to play the wrong spell when you don't get to play a lot of them in a turn. But piggybacking off of the idea of a small number of actions per turn, you also want to use a fairly simplistic game plan to minimize your own execution errors. Your primary focus on your own execution is to make sure you are playing your spells on curve and doing whatever thing it is your deck is designed to do. By focusing more on you know, you, you want your execution, you want all the, the mental labor of execution in a fair deck to be done before the tournament starts. And then they are also typically, at least, designed to win sideboarded games. You do not treat your fair deck as a 60-card deck with a 15-card sideboard. It is a 75-card deck. Not in the same way that the adventure decks are because of Fae of Wishes, but more the idea that your games two and three matter just as much, if not more, than your game ones. You know, you don't see decks like Dredge or Affinity referred to as fair decks because they're not. They are game one decks. They want to win an unreasonably large percentage of their game ones and then just kind of try to figure it out in sideboarded games. If they win 80% of their game ones and 60% of their sideboarded games because they, the opponent doesn't find their answers, those decks win a lot more than they lose and they're good to go. They, they win prizes. That's why people gravitate toward the unfair decks. But for those of you fighting the good fair fight, here's the, the mindset to go into your matchup with unfair decks if you're piloting a fair deck and you're playing against what you know is an unfair one. And we're going to break it down on an archetype by archetype basis, you know, aggro, mid-range, control. Combo is inherently an unfair archetype, so we will leave that out of the equation for now. But when you're playing an aggro deck, you are testing your opponent's consistency. How reliably do they combo off if they get to ignore you? Essentially, can you ignore me? Because I'm trying to ignore you. The idea, step one, you have to make them have it. Make them execute under pressure. Make them kill you before they die. Let them know right off the rip they do not have time to dirtle around. Step two, probably don't want to overextend into sweeper effects if you know their deck has them. A really good example is against Teamer Reclamation. It's real easy to go all the way in on Embercleave against Teamer Reclamation. And then they survive, and then you get blown out by Storm's Wrath or Flame Sweep or what have you, and your board state's gone. Now you can't Embercleave at all. You can no longer believe in the cleave because it is stranded in your hand. Step three, you use removal and disruption to cut off key turns wherever possible. If your opponent's combo is creature-oriented and requires multiple pieces, multiple moving parts in play, and you can remove one to make them find another one, or you can remove one to make them wait until next turn. Next turn may not be enough for them. They might die next turn. That is the, the looming threat of aggro against an unfair deck. And then when it comes to sideboarding, when it comes to sideboarding with a with a fair deck against with an aggro deck against an unfair deck, 
you sideboard out, you know, if you have dedicated creature removal against a deck like Team of Reclamation, board it out. It's not good. If you have dedicated stack interaction, i.e. if you're playing uh, like mono blue aggro, the, the mono blue flash decks or mono blue mutate or whatever you want to call it these days, if you're playing that against a deck that's dedicated to playing a bunch of dumb creatures and comboing off like the, the Winota decks, your negates are probably pretty bad. Because the only thing you're negating is Embercleave. So you probably want to board those out. And what you want to bring in is hosers that force your opponent to jump through one more hoop before they can go off. And this is a recurring theme on playing against these unfair decks, is they are typically leveraging one specific mechanic or specific resource. So when you can cut them off from that resource, even if only temporarily, it can often be the difference between winning and losing. Because now there's one extra step in their execution before you arrange theirs. So you board out your dead cards, your cards that don't have any text in the matchup, for the purposes of bringing in ways to slow down their core engine but obviously don't get bullied by cards like Baneslayer Angel out of the sideboard of ramp decks. You know, if Bant Ramp boards into Baneslayer Angel and you're playing Mono Red, Bant Ramp boards into Baneslayer, that's, that's a lot of bees. We talk about a lot of bees on this show. If they board into Baneslayer Angel, it's going to be real hard for your Mono Red deck to get there. So it's not a bad idea to have access to copies of Fry or, uh, oh, what is it called? Well, Fry, Embercleave's obviously great. Uh, just the ability to not let your Anax or Bonecrusher Giant get smacked down with first strike and give them five life. You know, in your Aura's deck, your opponent jamming a Baneslayer Angel onto the table is kind of hard to beat unless you're playing the version that's playing, you know, protection. You can play some protection effects. You can play some uh, some evasive effects to get around it. A really good example, like Ginger Brute's really good against their Baneslayer Angels because they can't block it. They can try to race, but they can't block it. <laughs> but that brings us to the second archetype. That's mid-range. Mid-range, when you're playing a mid-range deck against an unfair deck, you are testing their redundancy. How many times can you assemble your combo while I'm beating your face in? Mid-range against, uh, and to, to clarify, when I say mid-range, I mean rock-style mid-range. Mid-range that's playing disruption, that's playing some form of counter magic. Like, mid-range that interacts... As a, as a plan, mid-range that features disruption. I don't mean a gruel aggro deck that's a little bit bigger than the, uh, the mono-red decks. I mean a Sultai, a Sultai deck that's playing Thought Erasures and Mystical Disputes. I mean uh, the, the Grixis deck that's playing Thought Erasures and Croxas and Agonizing Remorses and is looking to just strip your hand to pieces and try to make you figure out a game plan while they beat you to death with cards like Croxa, Bone Crusher, and Brazen Borrower. I love those decks, by the way. Or the, the blue-black rogues deck that wants to do it with... wants to mill some of your some number of your win conditions with Thieves Guild Enforcer and wants to turn uh, Drown in the Lock into a split card of Doomblade... not even Doomblade, a split card of Terminate and Counterspell. Those are decks that have disruption ingrained into their fabric of design. And that's good. Because that's how you beat unfair decks with a fair one. Disruption plus clock is a time-tested, time uh, tried-and-true formula for beating an unfair deck. If you have one without the other, 
and you are not designed to win long games, you're not going to beat them. Because they, if you're all clock, your clock is naturally a little slower than an aggro dex. They may just get to ignore you and kill you. If you have all disruption and no clock, they will have time to set the pieces back up and get you that way. Removal and efficient bodies counterpunch against your opponent sideboarding into quote-unquote fair mode. A really good example is like, having access to removal and efficient bodies is a nice counterpunch to opponents who want to use cards like Shark Typhoon and Team of Reclamation to shut you down when you're attacking. It's a really effective method. Normally, you know, Shark Typhoon's a real good magic card. But it's a lot less good when you can kill the shark token. Yeah, your opponent got a two-for-one out of you, but the removal and the efficient body still allow you to apply enough pressure that your opponent feels compelled to try to combo off kind of loose. And then similar to the aggro decks, you want to sideboard out more general answers. You know, if, if you know their deck is creature-based, there's no reason to play specifically Mystical Dispute when you can board into Essence Scatter. If you know they are spell-based, there's not a great reason to play Mystical Dispute over more copies of Negate or even Miscast. So having access to more specific, more targeted disruption in your sideboard... A really good example is Duress against Team of Reclamation. It's really good there. Because Duress against Team of Reclamation was basically thought season. The only thing you couldn't take was Uro. And you're fine with that. Not being able to take Uro is fine because it means you get to take... Uh, it means you get to take away... For example, let's see, you take away Wilderness Reclamation, you take you can take away their turn two growth spiral if you're on the play. Or on the draw. You can take away the uh, the shark typhoon before it becomes a problem, before it can two for one you. You can snipe down key engine pieces and force your opponent to play fair drag them down to your level and beat them up with experience. That's a real good plan. Real good plan. And, and next, we have control decks. When you're playing a control deck against an unfair deck, you want to test their patience. How willing is your opponent to wait until they absolutely have it covered before trying to go off. How willing are they to wait, assemble pieces in hand, not feel pressured to go off, and make sure they have all your possible angles of countering are they willing to wait long enough to assemble the pieces in their hand they need to force their, their unfair thing through? Step one for control, leverage your inevitability. You will win by continuing to not lose. Your goal as a control deck against an unfair deck is just don't die. A really good example of that was Paulo Vitor Dama de Rosa playing blue-white control at the Tamer Reclamation World Championships. Like, there were over half the field was playing it. And Paulo chose to bring the Teferi deck because Teferi sitting on the battlefield shuts off the combo, forces Teamer to play fair. They didn't have access to Shark Typhoon. They didn't have access to a lot of this other nonsense they have now. Or had now before the bannings and Paulo was a very patient player against those those decks he didn't try to jam a win condition down their throat early and then ride it he made sure that they could not kill him before attempting to try to win the game 
You have to prioritize their engine and combo pieces with your interaction. Don't worry about using uh, don't worry about using a banishing light on Lovestruck Beast unless you absolutely have to. You can catch up. You'd rather use that banishing light on their Lucky Clover or their Edgewall Innkeeper. You have to take away the engine pieces so that the rest of what they're doing doesn't run you over because of those engine pieces. You have to prioritize answering the engine cards. If you don't, you will get valued to death. Step three is never go shields down. Even if you don't have it. Even if you don't have the counter. If you don't have the counter, the difference between you going shields down and you going, you know, cast a main phase omen to look for a land to play it, is maybe you don't die if you hold it because your opponent has to think about what you might have. Because you might be representing Brazen Borrower plus Opt. You might be representing Rewind plus another counter. You might be representing Shark Typhoon on their weird attack. They don't know. And knowledge, knowing is half the battle and they don't know. Make them play around everything. Or at least consider everything. If they have it, they have it and you're dead anyway. But make them... Make them execute. Make them show you. And then control decks more than the other two because aggro decks tend to be very limited in what they can sideboard into because the the mana curve and the aggressive creatures tend to take up a large chunk of their deck. Similarly, mid-range decks tend to, tend to be fairly f- more flexible in sideboarding but still fairly rigid in their approach. They still need so many disruption effects. They still need so many threats. They still need so much removal so that they don't get bodied around by the aggro decks. Well, control decks have no such stipulations. So control decks can play a sideboard that is full of backbreaking hoser cards and you force your opponent to jump through multiple hoops in order to attempt to win. In game one, you make them jump through hoops by making them play around all the counter spells you might have. In game two, and you're playing against Rakdo Sacrifice, well, now you're making them jump through the hoop of Grafdigger's Cage. And, oh, I don't know. know, Grafdigger's Cage is a really good card against them. Or used to be. Shut off the Cauldron Familiar. Maybe you sideboard into Leyline of the Void against the Sacrifice deck so that they can't rebuy their Croxes. So that they, you know, Gravedigger's Cage is really good against their Croxes still. It's really good against Woe Strider. It's really good against, you know, uh, Gravedigger's Cage shuts off half of Bolus's Citadel's incentive. They can't just vomit a bunch of spells off the top of their library into play in order to kill you with Bolus' Citadel. It shuts off Call the Death Dweller. It shuts off uh, Archfiend's Vessel because it just never comes out of the graveyard in the first place. It forces your opponent to act. They have to remove that before they can try to get one over on you. And then some general rules for playing a fair deck against an unfair deck. The first mindset is use this as a learning opportunity and be conscious of your play. You have to play these matchups differently. They are not the same. Playing your your aggro deck against a mid-range deck and playing your aggro deck against a, a Ragdo Sacrifice deck are two different matchups entirely. I don't just mean from a from a perspective of you know one's a one's a mid-range deck and one of them's a like a weird value engine that just kind of bullies you into submission because they get so many extra cards I mean one of them is trying to play your game but a little slower the other one is just 
trying to largely ignore what you do. And that's that's not it's uh, not the healthiest thing for you. But be conscious of the way that your play patterns change based on what your opponent is doing. Based on the fact that, you know, treat Mayhem Devil as if it invalidates every card in your deck with one toughness. Make your opponent jump through extra hoops in order to clear your board. Realize that Embercleave is probably not happening in this matchup and adjust your play patterns accordingly. Lean a little bit more heavily on Anax. Lean a little more heavily on Bone Crusher Giant sideboard into a big dumb thing that beats them down you know it changes the way you have to play your matchups you can't just function on autopilot the way you normally would with a mono red aggro deck uh b or step two realize that these decks reward format knowledge you don't play a fair deck that looks to disrupt what your opponents are doing a little bit and beat them up if you don't know what they're doing. If you don't know the format, don't play a fair deck. Play one of the unfair ones and cheese the free wins. Adventures is so much fun. (laughs) Ramp decks can be unbelievably fun because you just kind of rocket ahead of your opponent on mana and... You don't really care what they have because what they have can't possibly be as powerful as what you have. And then three, don't get discouraged. We call them unfair decks for a reason. They're unfair in more ways than one. They break the rules of magic and they feel unfair to play against. So that's it. That's all we got. There's nothing wrong with choosing the side of the decks that are a little bit less powerful but reward the way you play them. Unfortunately, it's something I've been doing for years, whether out of necessity or out of just desire. I like to learn. I like to to challenge myself and sometimes to a fault. That's why I've been playing decks like that blue-black tap-out control or the the Grixis Croxa mid-range or whatever right? I just, intrinsically, I enjoy playing games of fair magic more than I do games of unfair magic. At my core, that's just kind of how I'm wired. It's what I like. So I hope I've, I hope I've been able to give you some tips and tricks that will help you in your quest to, uh, Make it a nice, fair fight. And with that, you can uh, send me questions, comments, concerns. If you have them, send them to me. I'm on Twitter, at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. On um, We have the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. We have a Discord for the patrons of the show. There's also the Heasy Game Media Discord. Uh, you can find... If you, if you comb the tweets, at minimum, if you comb the tweets that Spencer's put out over the last few months, you will find the link to that. He's doing some cool stuff. He's looking to do some more arena opens with uh, with some sort of uh, store credit prizes. And that's about it. So... That brings me inevitably, it's funny I should use that, right? That brings me inevitably to the end here where we're going to do my favorite segment every week. Let me get it pulled up. Hashtag MTG Dad Jokes. Let's see what we got for this week. I think I might be the only one. Let's see. That's four days, four days, four days. I did do a few, didn't I? <laughs> so it, it started with uh, Jess Estefan said, What's he running out of ideas like? And it's the number of colossal Dreadmaw printings that have the same art with a different set symbol. There's one, two, 
three, four, five different versions of the same card. Six, sorry. Yeah, six different versions of the same card. Exact, like same art, everything. To which John Roberts or at JRR, I think it's JRR, is it JRR? Oh, JRR2. If you don't follow him, you need to. You need to you need to follow him. He says it's been a colossal waste of cardboard. <laughs> to which Jess said, "I hate myself for laughing." Don't hate yourself, Jess. It's wonderful. And then I had one a few days ago. I said, "What do Death Shadow, Kiln Fiend, Nevik Cyclops, and Electrostatic Pummeler have in common?" Oh, not much, except they're in the same rage group. Anyone? Anyone? Because Teamer Battle Rage. Teamer Battle Rage. Come on. That one's good. Next one we have from uh, Robert Taylor, who is one of the greatest gifts the Magic community has to offer because uh, Robert Taylor is one of the largest purveyors of deck lists from events and does works tirelessly to share event data with everybody. Said, would they really leave Crested Sunmare out of Amonkhet Remastered? Nay. <laughs> Last but not least, Emma Partlow, the, the caption for her article, Modern on a Budget, for Death Shadow, is simply, stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Mwah, chef's kiss. I love it. So, that's all we got for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed, again, questions, comments, concerns, Twitter, Facebook, or uh, Facebook group, or the Easy Game Media Discord once we get this episode uploaded. And with that in mind, I will leave you where I leave you every week with the words of wisdom from the 12th Doctor. We are in a pandemic. Everybody is dealing with something. So when dealing with each other, remember the words of wisdom from the 12th Doctor. Never be cruel. Never be cowardly. Remember that hate is always foolish, love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So run forth, fight fair, be kind, and we'll catch you next week. And Abel is here in the car with me this time. Can you tell everybody bye? Bye. One more. Bye. You heard him, folks. Catch you next week.